We're going to be in 1 Samuel 22 this morning. But before we get to 1 Samuel 22, we have two kingdom melodies to sing with David. So turn to Psalm 142 is where we're going to begin. And just remember David's context. He is in a, we're not going to go through the whole history, but in the immediate context in his life, he is being chased. He is being hunted. He has fled from uh, Samuel and he went to the priest, Ahimelech, and that interaction that we saw last week, which is going to play into this morning. He fled to the enemy there with the Philistines in Gath and the songs that we pressed into in his prayers last week. And he has escaped from that, that scene. Now he is fleeing to a cave. And this is going to be our context for Samuel 22 this morning. So Psalm 142 says it's a contemplation of David, a prayer when he was in the cave. I cry out to the Lord with my voice. With my voice to the Lord, I make supplication. I pour out my complaint before him. I declare before him my trouble. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, literally, David is losing hope. Then you knew my path. In the way in which I should walk, they have secretly set a snare for me. They're, they're setting traps for me. Look on my right hand and see, for there is no one who acknowledges me. Refuge has failed me. No one cares for my soul. You ever felt that way? Is that true in David's life? Has God protected him up to this point in his life, yes or no? Yeah, so God has been his refuge. Is David really all by himself? No, there's others there, there, that are there with him. Are there people who care for David and love him, love his soul? Of course. But are his, are his emotions real? Absolutely. He's in a cave, he's in a pit, he is alone, he is isolated, he is doing things that he would not normally do in his fear, he's pressing into his relationship with the Lord, and as he's in this cave, here's a song that he's singing to the Lord, pouring out his trouble and complaint to God, but he doesn't stay there. I cried out to you, O Lord, I said, you are my refuge. Not man, not a place, the Almighty God. You are my portion in the land of the living. It's not money, it's not position, it's not family, it's not friends. My Lord, you're my portion, my inheritance in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are stronger than I am. Bring my soul out of prison. Look at that definition. His soul, his mind, his life in a cage. Feels like it physically a little bit, definitely emotionally. Can feel like that spiritually. Bring my soul out of prison, Lord. Why? That I may praise your name, that I may thank you. That the righteous... The righteous, look at this, this bold declaration of confidence. The wicked, they are trying to trap me and surround me, but what's, what's the reality? What's the truth? The righteous shall surround me, and Lord, you shall deal bountifully with me. Turn back to Psalm 57. Same context in the cave. To the chief musician, set to do not destroy, a victim of David when he fled from Saul into the cave. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. For my soul trusts in you. And in the shadow of your wings, I will make my refuge until these calamities have passed by. I will cry out to God most high, to God who performs all things for me. He shall send from heaven and save me. He reproaches the one who would small, swallow me up. God shall send forth his mercy and truth. Circle that, 
highlighted, underlined it. John chapter 1, God sent his son to tabernacle in the flesh, and we beheld his glory as the only begotten son of God. Full of what? Full of grace, full of truth. Here, God's saying, God shall send forth his mercy and his truth. He sent forth his son for us. He sent his son from heaven to save us. Credible declaration. Verse 4, my soul is among lions. I lie among the sons of men who are set on fire, whose teeth are spears and arrows, and their tongue a sharp sword. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. They have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They have, have dug a pit before me. Into the midst of it they themselves have fallen. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. Can you hear that both in the verse 1, like this? Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. Here, my heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. There's a part of him and there's a part of us that you know what you want to be true in the moment and you don't really feel it. You're doubting, you're wavering, you're discouraged, you're in the pit, you feel persecuted, whatever that emotion is, but you're telling yourself, God, I will be steadfast. My heart will cling to you in this moment. I will sing and give praise. Awake, my glory. Awake, lute and harp. I will awaken the dawn. I will wake up every morning and the dawn, I'm going to sing that sun up, Lord, because I'm going to praise you. I will praise you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing to you among the nations. For your mercy reaches unto the heavens, and your truth unto the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. All right, 1 Samuel 22. We start there in his songs and his kingdom melodies, because 1 Samuel 22 does not give us the context of what do you think David is feeling in this moment. And often as we sit in the word of God, we, we want to press into the situation, the character, what's going on, what would the emotions be? Um, often we have little nuggets that give us glimpses to what's going on, and sometimes we don't. So we read through here, uh, 1 Samuel 22 begins, David therefore departed from there, so fleeing from Gath, the enemies that he went to, and had to pretend that he was crazy. And as he's crying out to God, God delivers him. David therefore departs from there and escapes. Literally, he fled to safety to the cave of Adullam. We don't have any of his motions. It just gives us the circumstance that he ran. So the Psalms, again, these songs, they give us a glimpse of David's heart. He's in pain. He's troubled. He's discouraged. He's alone. He's afraid. All of these emotions, they're real. But what is he doing with those emotions? He's taking them to the Lord. In his circumstances, in, his, in the words that are coming out of his mouth, we've seen that he's told lies. And he feels justified in the moment of doing those things. And I guarantee that he feels that guilt and those sh the shame of doing what he's been doing. I guarantee he feels guilt and shame of going to the place of the enemy. Why did he end up there? He didn't feel safe at home. Did he think he was going to feel safe there? Again, we don't have his whole thought process. But I guarantee, you know, he's struggling with his mind. He's struggling with the words that are coming out of his mouth. He's struggling with his behavior. In some ways, he's doing well. In other ways, he's feeling like he's not doing well. But then we get these songs where what is he doing as he's talking to God? He remembers who God is. He remembers who he is in the image and vision of God. He remembers that all refuge has departed from me. And no, God, you're my refuge. Just like a baby bird is going to find shelter under the wings of its mom. I find my shelter under your wings, Lord. And any time I get out from underneath that fortress and those wings and that love and that protection and try to do things on my own, Lord, I feel uncomfortable. I feel shame. I'm operating in my flesh. God, I will sing. 
I will praise. I will thank. I will remember. You hear all of this as he's in a cave. Anybody want to go live in a cave? I mean, again, this, this is not fake. This is real context. And he's pinning this stuff. Again, he's not completely alone. So here in the next verse, it says, when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. So David, as he is fleeing from Saul, Saul, there's men that have gone with him. There's some young men who are with him. There's some messengers. He's got to, uh, you know, have these messengers going in and out. He's a general. He's a leader in this context. Somehow, through the men that are with him, he's gotten word to his family. Why would David need to send a messenger to his family? And why would his family, excuse me, leave Bethlehem and come to him in a cave? Do you think his family's in danger? This is is the, the world that we live in. Men and women who have power throughout history often will execute those who are out of line. Saul is hunting David. Where is he? That means he's hunting everybody that may be in partnership with David. If I want to draw David out, I don't know where he is. Why don't I go capture his mother and his father and his brothers and their spouses and their children? Do you think that'll draw David out? That's, a, that's what the thought process. So David has sent messengers to his household. Run. And where do they run? They join David here in the cave. Says, verse 2, everyone who was in distress, this is they're in hardship, pressure, trouble, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented, literally bitter of soul, gathered to him. So he became captain over them, and there were about 400 men with David. Is that who you want gathered to you? Distressed individuals, men and women who are in debt, and people who have bitter souls. Are those the people that you want to lead? Look around the room. This is, excuse my throat, Julie and I were laughing so hard last night that I'm not going to even give you the circumstance. Um, it's impacting my throat because I was laughing so hard. Anyways, that's the context. Um, <laughs> all right, back to where we are in the Word of God, people. Um, this is, I've, I've titled this morning's message just Outcasts. And you sit in the, the definition of the men. So same thing. David has led multiple successful military conflicts. David has become a military leader. There are men who have served under his leadership, who love him, who respect him, who cherish him, who have a relationship with him, and they themselves, they're in distress because they're in line with David, not in line with Saul. Some of his close military associates, their lives, their households are clearly gonna be in danger. But here there's, there's an exodus out, of, out from underneath Saul in the pursuit of David. So as these messengers have gone out reporting to different specific individuals, those individuals are packing up their households. Some of these individuals are going to be married. They're going to have kids. So it's not just 400 men. It's also some spouses. It's also some children gathered together in the middle of nowhere. This cave of Abdullam, archaeologists don't know where it is. It's somewhere in between where the Philistines are in control and where Saul is in control. And here's a cave in the middle of nowhere as David is pouring out his heart to the Lord and the outcasts are being gathered to him. And as a leader, how do you feed these people? And that's going to be some of the context as, as we move forward. Again, there's, there's, these people need to be fed. They need to be housed. They need to be protected. This is, this is a mobile city, a mobile town now, and everything that goes along with it. Hold your place here. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians. Because as you, as we talk about outcasts, 
these individuals who are gathered to David, it really is a picture, an image of those of us who gather to our King David, to King Jesus. How many of you feel like you fit in this world? I don't at all. There's many times, even today, I don't even feel like I fit in my own skin. Why do I think that? Why do I say that? Why do I do that? I, I feel like an outcast from the culture and that not fitting in, not, not being satisfied with my life in this world, that, that distress, that trouble, that discontent within is something that the Lord used in my life as he was exposing the incredible gospel of Jesus Christ to me. I'm an outcast from this world to Jesus. As you look around the room, as we are outcasts together, we come from all these different backgrounds, all these different stresses and pressures and life circumstance that as an outcast, something, somewhere, somebody cast you out and you left bitterness, discontent. That's not where life is. That's not where light is. And you found it in your king. And that's all of this imagery that David helps provide for us in Christ. But here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul is writing a very challenging letter to the Corinthian church. There's issues going on. One is saying, hey, Apollos is better than Paul. Peter's better than Paul. All, this, all these internal discussions and debate that's absolutely worthless. In verse 10, Paul says, I plead with you, brethren by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you and that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. It's been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions, there's discord among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul. I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? No. Was Paul crucified for you? No. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? No. Thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. Lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the, the household of Stephanas. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize. What did he send me to do? To preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. I had a conversation last night across the table from Total Brother. He's talking about this very scholarly document on uh, the difference between Baptist baptism and Presbyterian baptism. And my eyes just went cross. I mean, there's a, there's a whole bunch of things that are fun to geek out in, but I don't care. Are you supposed to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, yes or no? Yes. It is an act of obedience and submission to the one that you call Lord and Savior. You must be baptized, not for salvation, for obedience, for relationship, for image, for boldness. Publicly, I am Christ. Now, were you convinced by an argument to come to Jesus as an outcast, or were you convinced by the cross? When you look at that object, does that represent to you your savior paying your payment, past, present, and future debts? That's what it's all about. Doctrine, teaching, go into all of this world and teach those who are going to claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, that we are to teach people to be obedient to all of his commands. Yes, we need to have wisdom. Yes, there's teaching, there's doctrine, there's instruction. All of it, though, is based on the foundation of the cross of Christ. So Paul is, all the, all the weird arguments that churches get into, and ourselves included, and myself included, because we have opinions, we have distinctions, 
But all of that stuff needs to be secondary. And I didn't come to you with all these incredible words. I came to you with the cross of Christ. I've preached the good news. And again, if, if reliance is on any other argument, the cross of Christ becomes no effect because where's your faith? Your faith is in a one argument. Your faith is not in the person of God. The message of the cross, it's, it's foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power, the achieving power of God. It is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. Bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer, the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of this world? All of its different philosophies, all of its different religions. Has God not made foolish all of that by the cross of Christ? The almighty God became a man to die for your sins because he loves you and he created you to be in his image. And through faith in him, you have him forever. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believed. For the Jews require, request a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. All that is a foundation to get to this line here. For you see your calling. Consider your calling, your invitation to experience your God and your Savior, brethren. Not many wise, according to the flesh. Not many mighty. Not many noble are called. Look at David's context. The distressed, the in debt, the discontent. Same kind of imagery. Not the wise from the day, not the mighty and the strong, not the nobles are gathering unto David as king. Not many of those who are wise in their mind and in the world system, not those who are mighty, not talking about physical might or military might, but those who have power in this world to different degrees, not who are considered noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to, to nothing the things that are. Why? That no flesh should glory in his presence, but of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. What a, what a fabulous encouragement from Paul. But look at, look at David's context. What would you do if these were the individuals gathering to you? Is this, is this a good team to go plant a new church with? Is, it, is this a good team to engage in a business adventure with? You want to invest your capital and resources in this 400, this, these 400 men, yes or no? They're in trouble, they're in debt, and they're bitter. But does that mean that they're losers? No. Does that mean they're stupid? No. Does it mean they're lazy? No. Just here's a context in life that they are fully dissatisfied in. And they're gathering and assembling to their king. When Jesus looks at us who assembled to him, when he looks in this room right now, what would you think? I know me. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a, you know, I'm not the, the golden child star kid that you... You know, 
again, this isn't like poo-pooing on me or anybody else and that kind of stuff, but I, when I look in the mirror, come on, Lord, there's got to be a thousand men in this community that can do a better job at this than me. There's got to be. But again, this world, is the world going to define me? As, here's, here's a golden boy. Here's the guy that you want leading the movement. You know, there's, there's, there's all these different labels that can be placed on us. You can put all these labels upon yourself. But when Christ looks at us, he doesn't look at all of our weakness. He sees it and he knows it. You sit in Corinthians with Paul, this idea of, you know, I'm not wise according to this world's standards. I don't have the PhD and all the acronyms after my name. I'm not of high blood and high nobility. There's no reason to listen to what Blake West says in and of himself. But Christ called me nonetheless. Something that the world would cast off, that Saul wouldn't want on his team. And again, you, you look at all the different reasons why we assemble to Jesus. We realize our brokenness. We realize the lack of satisfaction in this world. We realize how far, 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 we fall short of the world's standards and the world's definitions of who we ought to be as a man, who we ought to be as a woman, what you ought to do as a mom, as a, as a businessman in the body, you know, just all these other labels. And again, we don't, we don't assemble to doctrines. We assemble to our king. And our king does what? He gives us wisdom. In the body of Christ, in this room, there is incredible wisdom that has been given to God by multiple men and women in this room that as I have been able to fellowship with you, God has using, used you to give me wisdom, to give me understanding, to give me knowledge, perspective. He's taken your stories of transformation. This is who I was before Jesus. And here is the power of the gospel and the testimony of who Jesus Christ is. Nobody can deny the radical transformation that has occurred in my own life. Nobody can deny the new heart that has been granted to you. And it hasn't been through some systematic theology. It's come from you gathered to your king. And this is the imagery that's being given to us with David. These, these become the mighty men of David, these war heroes. As he comes into the position of king, these are the men that he appoints to different areas of leadership. You know, these are the glory days, the, the men that rallied at, to David when he was at his weakest. These were the men that David is going to trust in the long term. Why? Because they lived in a cave together. They lived in a pit together. These men watched David in his integrity. They watched him in his tears. They watched him in his song. They watched him in his leadership. He imaged for them something that is, I am willing to leave the kingdom of Saul and place myself and my household under the king of David. I am willing to leave this world, the United States of America, job, ministry, you put the label, I am willing to leave to gather to my king Jesus, because therein, it's only where life is. That's it, period. I love it. All right, verse three, in five minutes. David went from there to Mizpah, the watchtower of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and mother come here with you till I know what God will do for me. So he brought them before the king of Moab and they dwelt with him all, that, all the time that David was in the stronghold. So here his family has come to him. I'm sure some remained in the cave in this stronghold. Others went with David to the south, so south of the Dead Sea, they cross over into Moab. Why would David take his mom and his dad to Moab, the enemies of Israel? It was David's great-grandma, Ruth. Where's Ruth from? She's from Moab. 
There's a connection here. And again, this is Eastern culture, family connection, genealogies. They all know what their background is. They know the family members that they have back in Moab. David knows his position as the future anointed king in the nation of Israel. And here's one king going to another king. Would you watch after my mom and dad? Because my parents, they're not safe in the land. And he leaves his parents there, and then David goes back to the stronghold, to this cave in Abdullah. Now, there's, there's some dis, discussion. Abdullah may be the stronghold itself. Some identify the stronghold that David is in as Masada somewhere. You know, take your option. It's not clearly defined for us. But when David goes back to the stronghold, verse 5, the prophet Gad said to David, do not stay in the stronghold, depart and go into the land of Judah. David is of the tribe of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Now, here you have David. He has found some kind of respite, refuge in nowhere in this cave. People are gathering to him. He's now provided for his parents' safety. He's come back to this position, and God sends a prophet to David to say, David, you need to leave here, and you need to go to the land of Judah. And what does David do? Does he argue? He goes. Does what he's, does what he's instructed to do by the Lord. Now... We'll see, how you, we'll see how nice you think God is in verse 6. When Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered. So because God sent Gad to tell David to leave the cave, that Saul doesn't know where you are, and to go into Judah, God has allowed you to be discovered by Saul. How do you like God now? God has his plans and his purposes to perform. He does not want David in the, in the cave at this moment. He wants him in the land of his tribe. And again, this is not to create a civil war between Benjamin and Judah, but David very easily could have done that. All right, so verse 6, now we're getting into Saul's digression. Saul was staying in Gibeah under a tamarisk tree in Ramah with his spear in his hand, ready to kill someone, as usual, all his servants standing about him. Then Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Here now, you Benjamites, will the son of Jesse, will he give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you all captains of thousands of cap and captains of hundreds? In other words, if I don't remain king, you're going to lose. You're going to lose your stuff. If you keep me king, I'm going to give you stuff. All this, this for that kind of relationship, you know, political intrigue. Again, he's just, he's sitting in his own mind. He's trying to guilt trip people. Does this sound like any of the politicians you know today? That's how whiny this guy gets. All of you have conspired against me. And there is none who reveals to me that my own son, that, this, that my son made a covenant with the son of Jesse. And there is not one of you who is sorry for me or reveals to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as it is this day. He's got his perspective. He's all twisted and broken. It's come out. Uh, the, the knowledge of these multiple covenants between Jonathan and David, and he's, he's given everybody a guilt trip, trying to get his way, protect his kingdom, all these issues. Verse 9, then answered Doeg the Edomite, who was set over the servants of Saul, and said, I saw the son of Jesse going to Nob, to Ahimelech the son of Ahitub, and he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Now remember, we were introduced to this man last week in 21.7 as David is there lying to Ahimelech, getting some bread because he's hungry, lying to protect Ahimelech, not to bring him into his issues. Here's this man Doeg that sees what's going on. And now... Here's Saul being whiny hiney and not getting his way, people not giving him correct reports, trying to guilt trip him, all this kind of stuff. Now here's this dog, Doeg, 
not even of the tribes of Israel, but an Edomite who Saul had gone against the Edomites to war. He's placed this enemy that's come, become his servant in a position over his herds. And Doeg is looking at opportunity. I have some information that can enrich me. And that's why he's giving Saul the information. So the king sent to call Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and note this, all his father's house, the priests who were in Nob, and they all came to the king. And Saul said, here now, son of Ahitub. So calling to account, believing the testimony of Doeg, Saul said, uh, he answered, here I am, my lord. So this priest and 84 others, then Saul said to him, why have you conspired against me? You and the son of Jesse, and that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him. And this is not just simple, some simple prayer, but like the prerogative of a king. You have divined the will of God for my enemy, that he should rise against me to lie in wait as it is this day. You, you sought God on behalf of David of how he can lie in wait to kill me. What does Ahimelech say? Verse 14. He answers the king and says, And who among all your servants is as faithful as David, who's the king's son-in-law, who goes at your bidding and is honorable in all your house. Did I then begin to inquire of God for him? Far be it from me. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to any in the house of my father. For your servant knew nothing of all this, little or much. Gives the testimony. David, David's your man. If David comes to me and he, you know, he gave me this information that he's on an errand for the king, of course I'm going to help him. He's honorable. He's faithful. He's your guard. He's your son-in-law. Why would I not help him? I didn't inquire of God on his behalf against you. Let those, let those accusations be far from me. None of this is true. Verse 16, the king said, You shall surely die, Himelech, you and all your father's house. Violent rage. Then the king said to the guards who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David, and because they knew when he fled and did not tell it to me. But the servants of the king would not lift their hands to strike the priests of the Lord. Good servants right there. And the king said to Doeg, you do it. You turn and kill the priests. So Doeg the Edomite turned and struck the priests and killed on that day 85 men who wore a linen ephod. Also Nob, the city of the priests, he struck with the edge of the sword both men and women, children and nursing infants, oxen and donkeys and sheep with the edge of the sword. We, earlier in Samuel, listened to God give that exact same instruction to Saul to go and take care of the Amalekites. Saul was unwilling to follow God's instruction in regards to the enemies of the nation of Israel and the judgment that God was passing upon the Amalekites and all that history that we've already sat in. But look at his heart. He is willing to kill the priests of God, men, women, children, animals of his nation that he is to shepherd care for, protect, to go out to war against their enemies. Look at Saul's heart. This group, they're against me. Kill them. His servants refuse, which they should refuse. But here's a dog who is willing to do the dirty deed. And this man and whoever else was willing to follow him Brutal low point in Saul's life. Verse 20. 
One of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the Lord's priests. So David said to Abiathar, I knew that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul. I've caused the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me, do not fear. For he who seeks my, uh, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. But with me, you should be safe. You'll be, you'll be held in trust. David, regardless of where he goes, he is a danger to anybody that's associated with him. Had David given... Ahimelech, the truth in that moment, would that have preserved Ahimelech's life? I don't know. David had to live with that question. He knew that he had, just by showing up, that Saul's violence was going to extend to any that are, are helping him. And David, in this res, uh, you know, realization of that, Turn to Psalm 52. This is where we'll end. David has a song to sing to the Lord about Doeg. Psalm 52 says, To the chief musician, a contemplation of David, when Doeg the Edomite went and told Saul and said to him, David has gone to the house of Ahimelech. Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The goodness of God endures continually. As he is writing this song, clearly there is, there's, a, there's a message that David wants to land in the ears of this man, Doeg, but ultimately he's talking to any mighty man or woman who boasts in evil. Let it be known that the goodness of God endures continually. Your tongue devises destruction. Like a sharp razor working deceitfully, you love evil more than good, lying rather than speaking righteousness. Salah, take a pause, meditate. And again, we can, we can sit in lots of tongues that speak all these lies and boasts in regards to evil behavior. And that message that we need to communicate is that that behavior is evil, but God's goodness will endure forever and ever. Verse 4, you love all devouring words, you deceitful tongue. God shall likewise destroy you forever. He shall take you away and pluck you out of your dwelling place and uproot you from the land of the living. This is, a, this is a proclamation of, of future judgment in Doeg's life if he does not repent, and he doesn't. But it's the same message that we need to convey to the culture. Those who are standing in that gap saying that evil is good. Those who would stand in the gap and say that to, to kill a child in the womb, it's good, it's right. That is evil. Those who would stand in the gap and confuse the gender of children, that's evil. Those who would stand in the gap and damage another human being's body because their psychology is damaged and they are discontent in their own skin, those who stand in that gap and promote it, that is evil. But those are just, those are just the big things. Lies, that's evil. A dark heart, that's evil. Lust, greed, selfishness, covetousness. All these, all these things that creep in of self-justification. Had Jesus Christ not cleansed me from my sins on the cross, I would be just as much a dead dog as Doeg. 
but it's through the message of the cross that I've responded to. It's through the message of the cross that I am kept clean. Do you not know that God shall likewise destroy you forever? He shall take you away and pluck you out of your dwelling place and uproot you from the land of the living. Consider your mind, consider your heart, consider your words, consider your actions. But verse six, the righteous also shall see and fear God, that not Doeg's life be my life. I fear the darkness, Lord. I fear the lies of this world. I can, I can fear the temptations of the devil. I can fear my own thought processes and all these things that would cause me to drift away you, Lord. I'm righteous because of the blood of Jesus Christ. I see all these other things, Lord, and I know their end. I see it, and I fear. I revere you. I stand in awe of you. And it's, I shall laugh at him, not ha, 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 we're so better, and look at you, you're going to die. But there's this, there's this mocking and derision of all of those messages that stand in opposition to the voice of God. Verse 7, here is the man who did not make God his strength, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and strengthened himself in his wickedness. Make God your strength. Contrast in verse 8. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. I will praise you forever because you have done it. And in the presence of your saints, I will wait on your name for it is good. Now, context, what's just happened in David's life? Men that he had a relationship with. He had a relationship with Ahimelech. These men's wives, their children, fathers, mothers, murdered because of a man's hatred for David. As a catalyst, the spy who was willing to give Saul the information to feed the madman information that he absolutely did not need, that the others around him are withholding from Saul because they know his insanity, here the dog gives him the information to enrich himself, to abide in these lies, to get what he wants, willing to take up the sword himself Can you imagine plunging it into the chest of each one of these men one at a time and not being satiated by that, but taking that sword and others with you to execute innocence? David is singing to the Lord. Do you not know that God sees? God sees. God sees. He's merciful. Through the righteousness of Jesus Christ, through faith in him, you have been made righteous, wise, sanctified. Look at David's description here. Worship team, come on up. He says he's like a green olive tree. Olive tree, the imagery is throughout the Old and New Testaments. But here's this tree that is hardy and produces this fruit of an olive in the culture. Main agricultural products were grapes, wine, wheat for bread, and the olives. The olives are used for oil. It's used for anointing. It's used in the sacrifices. It's used in all of these different ways culturally and for food. David is giving himself a contrast. I am not a wicked man. I have been granted the righteousness of God. And because I have God's righteousness, I am like this forever permanent olive tree. You can go to the Mount of Olives today. There's some olive trees there at the base where that whole hill used to be covered with these groves producing this product. 
here Jesus overlooking on the Mount of Olives in all of its full imagery of the city of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount as he is weeping over Jerusalem because they did not recognize their king. And he goes in as king, declares himself to be king, allows himself to be crucified and murdered as a sacrifice for sins. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That last day, the, the last supper meal, as they're breaking the bread, as they're consuming the cup of this covenant, crossing over that brook Kidron that is colored blood with all of the sacrifices as Passover as they go into the Garden of Gethsemane, these olive trees that witnessed his prayer to his father, Father, let this cup depart from me. But nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. God has made each one of us through faith in his son like an olive tree in his presence for eternity. Ancient, forever, producing its fruit. Fruit that is used in all of these different ways in God's kingdom imagery of the Holy Spirit on us, his anointing, his mind, and his heart, constantly feeding his oil into, to, to fan that furnace of flame and passion for our God. Us as the outcasts that do not fit into all of these pockets of the world system that they attempt to force us into, no, there's no satisfaction there. Where do you find satisfaction? In gathering to the king, in gathering to his message, gathering to his cross, trusting in his life, trusting in his crucifixion, trusting in his resurrection. God, I still feel like an outcast. I still feel like there's, that I don't belong in this world yet, You've given me a place to belong in your body. There's, there's so much peace that you bring in, contentment. You freed me from the debt. You took away the bitterness. Amen?